God sent her destruction by the hands of the beast and his allies. We have then had victory over the beast and false prophet in the battle of Armageddon. We then saw, uh, after a thousand years of Edenic life, um, we find men rising up and we find the nations of unbelievers also dealt with through the battle of Gog Magog. And then finally we saw Satan destroyed, not destroyed, but put in his eternal place of punishment, which is the lake of fire, where he is um, there with the other entities, except for, of course, the harlot, who was simply destroyed, not an eternal spiritual entity, um, but rather uh, we find uh, her destruction temporal. So we come now to dealing with men. And the last in the series of God's judgments, the final disposition of men, the disposition of Satan and the uh, demons has been dealt with. And we find that um, the final disposition now of man is to be dealt with, and that is both positive and negatively. And so we're going to see kind of an A-B-B-A relationship here that, Paul, that John's going to be using. He's going to talk about the sinners, he's going to talk about the saints, and he's going to talk a little bit more about the saints, and he's going to talk, go back to the sinners, uh, to those that have not received Christ as their Savior, and whose names are not written in the book of, of life. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and read through, beginning chapter 20, verse 11. And we're going to read into chapter 21 and go down to verse 8. We are not going to get into the New Jerusalem. Uh, next week will be the New Jerusalem. We're going to study out. And then the week after that, we will be finishing up the last chapter here, talking about the sureness of the eternal, of the description here. And uh, that will finish up our study outside of possibly a review Sunday. Um, by the way, we are not going to have Sunday night during Labor Day weekend. So we're invite, going to be inviting people up for the Bahamas. If you want to come spend Sunday night up there, we'll have a little campfire and sing inspiration. We did this a couple years ago, I think. Um, and so we're going to have Sunday night up there at the Bahamas. We're trying to get the roads <laughs> ready for that. Um, and uh, just be praying. So that'll be Labor Day weekend. But that's after Revelation will be done by then. So I won't start a new study until after Labor Day. Uh, for Sunday night. So if we need one week to kind of answer any questions you have, uh, I'm going to open that up and, and we're going to try to do that. I think I'll have one week left um, to do that with. And so any questions you have on on uh, the message and the whole chronology or any of the content of Revelation, I'll be looking forward to that time. Okay, let's go Lord in prayer before we get into our study here in chapter 20, verse 11. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you once again for the opportunity to look in your word, and we pray you might direct our thoughts and attentions in it, that we might be uh, moved to action by the consideration of the end, that there is only these days of salvation available for men to decide their eternal state, uh, and then will come judgment. And we pray that we might uh, have that urgency to share the gospel with those around us. Uh, We also uh, recognize that there's a sure hope for those who have placed their trust in you and that this world is not our home. And this is not our uh, objective, that there is much more. 
And Lord, we pray that uh, these things might move our uh, priorities in life, our speech, our actions, uh, our longings, that they might conform to your word uh, and to your promises. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, the great white throne, you knew we were getting there. Uh, We've heard a lot about that. Let's go ahead and read the passage here before us on that facet of it, at least. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast in lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We're going to stop there really quickly. We're going to take care of this half We're going to, uh, of the equation. We're going to start there. We're going to end there with what happens to the men who have rejected and denied Christ whose names are not written in the book of life. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the, the destruction, the, the end of this world and before the creation of the new heavens and new earth. Um, John doesn't go into a lot of detail about it. We have a lot of information about the new Jerusalem, about the new heaven, new earth that has come. He hasn't really described for us the, uh, what happened to this earth. What's, he doesn't go into that detail outside of this one little phrase in this verse 11. And that is that uh, the heaven, the earth and the heaven fled away. And that is referring to the creation that we know it, the universe that we know it, fleeing away. That is that once we get to the great white throne judgment, the destruction of heaven and earth is already completed. We already have the resurrection. God has drawn out the uh, spiritual beings that will survive this creation, whether they survive it in the lake of fire, survive it in his presence, they are all now resurrected. The Bible says that all men will participate in the resurrection. And so uh, whether you're a lost person or a believer, you will all participate in the resurrection, one to life and one to death, to eternal judgment. And so we find this is the last resurrection. Remember, blessed is he who participates in the first resurrection, which implies something that you don't want to be part of the second one. (laughs) You don't want to be in this one, uh, because this one is judgment. You have no more opportunities. There is no uh, back doorway into heaven through the second resurrection. Uh, And so uh, the earth, the universe, they're all gone um, the, Peter tells that they are destroyed in fervent heat, uh, that they are uh, dissolved, that they are gone, they are fled away. And so that's how this universe as we know it um, will be uh, destroyed uh, in preparation for a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And so we find that uh, we come to the great white throne, heavens fled away, earth's the, uh, the face of the earth has fled away from whose face the earth and the heaven have fled away. And there's no, there's no place for them. There, there's no more earth, no more heaven. They're gone. But before they were gone, out of them were drawn the dead. So all the dead were extracted from there. And we often think of the dead as corpses. Um, but obviously, um, 
the corpses of men have, especially when it involves also the dead who are in the sea, um, the, the one who are in death in Hades were delivered up, the dead who are in them. And we recognize that while there is some kind of physicality involved in this resurrection, we are talking about the spirits of those who have gone. And we have some idea uh, that there's a physical presence even after death in Hades. And so remember that Hades is a place that is half empty at this point because the portion that's called Abraham's bosom was emptied by Christ. Um, On the other side, the place of torment, um, they're still waiting. And so don't think that they're in this sleep state or whatever, nothing's happened to him, but rather they have torment even now, waiting for their judgment. We find the dead, small and great, uh, standing before God. And we're, in, we're uh, invited in to look into the, the standard by which they are going to be judged. Uh, there, is a, there are some books opened, and uh, there's another book. So there's like a pile of books, and then there's the book. Okay, so we have two distinct sets. One's a library, and one's a single volume. Okay, so we have the books are open, and then there's the book. Uh, and so we have another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead are judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. See the plural. When we go later on, um, anyone on, not found book in the book of life was cast like a fire in verse 15. So we have a judgment based upon two bases. So we have two uh, criteria to be examined by. One are the books. And we don't know a lot about those, those aren't really described for us in detail, but we have some insight into them from the passage here. And then, of course, the book of life. And we all have a pretty good idea about the book of life, that your name has got to be listed there. It is a registry of the citizens of heaven. That's essentially what it is. Your name has got to be in that book, or you're not going in, is the registry. So when you see cartoons and other pictures and portrayals of the entry into heaven, and you see this long line, and you see this podium, and this guy's got a great big book open. Usually it portrays Peter or someone like that doing it, but it's obviously it's God that's going to be there. Um, the question is, is your name in the book? Okay, is your name in the book of life? Now, there are different perspectives on this. Um, uh, there are some who believe that everyone's name is written in the book of life, and then it is expunged and either rewritten or not rewritten. Um, Whether that is, and and that's because of some of the Psalms and some other passages that talk about that uh, don't remove my name from the book of life. Um, And that would correlate with my position on the doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ died for all men, and that he cleansed all men. He took, he was the second Adam, and so he took, uh, original sin on himself for all men. And thus no one is condemned and going to be in the lake of fire because of original sin, which is really important in really one substantial category of people, uh, which are who? Children. Uh, infants. Uh, the preborn and, uh, and infants who have not reached an age, uh, we use the term age of accountability, where they know they're naked and not ashamed or are ashamed. Uh, and so we find that um, they have uh, 
uh, their names written there because Christ died for the world. He died for all men. Uh, and then it says especially, that is additionally for those who believe. And so all men are benefactors of the commonality of the second Adam. That everyone touched by Adam's sin was touched by Christ's sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that they were then uh, going to be in heaven because of their volitional sin then expunge them from the book and it had to be written down again through belief in the name of Jesus Christ in the person and work of Christ. And so that fits my theology of Christ and of salvation um, and that's convenient, um, but really we don't know that for sure, that that's how it is, but there is some reference in the Bible to being removed from the book of life, which we know from Christ's statement that once you're in my Father's hand, no one can take you out. And so those that want to believe you can lose your salvation would say, oh, you can be removed from the book of life. Well, I would contend that that's referring rather to the universality of Christ's sacrifice in it as the second Adam, and now your name is then expunged with your volitional sin, so if you didn't have any of that and you died um, before you had sinned, uh, which means you're an infant, um, your name is in the book of life. And so we don't have to do any gymnastics theologically or with religious activity to get to deal with infants and the, and the unborn, to get them to heaven. We just don't have to do it. And it's unfortunately, it's unfortunate that in Christendom we have lost track of the two facets of Christ's sacrifice that are really presented, I think, very well in Romans, particularly, where he is the second Adam. I mean, it's very obvious. Everyone touched by Adam's sin is touched by Christ's sacrifice. Um, and so that, I believe, refers to original sin, and that while we are forgiven of that, and it will not condemn us, which we're going to see here in this passage, um, it uh, is not uh, sufficient to deliver us from volitional sin, because once your will is involved... Now you have to willingly submit to Christ and receive his salvation when you're at that age and able to do that. And so we have that book of life, and we're familiar with that, the necessity to have your name in there. You might say, well, why is it open now? Why was it open later when everyone was arriving in heaven with tears and greeted by Jesus and given white robes? Well, uh, they all knew they belonged. They are part of the first resurrection. Um, the list is there to keep people out, not to let people in at this point because at this point there's not anyone left that needs to uh, be introduced and so it's really an evidence against us so I would contend there probably is a pretty long line here because every single person coming up to this throne of judgment and confronted with this book and says can you check it again everyone says but Lord I preached in your name I healed in your name I did this in your name Lord Lord I've been I did all, I've read your Bible, I, I, but, 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 I've been a good Mason. That's what the Masons are taught to say. When you're confronted with a throne, great, when you're confronted with a great white throne in Masonry, and interestingly, because Mormonism is just a rewrapped Masonry is all it really is, in Mormonism, when, you're, when you stand before the great white throne, you are told that your argument is, I have been a good Freemason, I have been a good Mormon. Isn't that a sad thing? That means that they are being promised as a good Mason, as a good Mormon, you are going to have to face the great white throne judgment. Think about that. That means you're part of the second resurrection, which means 
You can't be part of the redeemed. And they're actually declaring that by doing it. But because of the ignorance of men, they think, well, this is a great answer. That's, but, and Jesus described that answer. Lord, Lord. When are they going to say that to Lord? Right here. Look what we did in your name. And Jesus says, I don't know you. You're not on the list. Your name's not in the book of life. And so they are not going to, the, the, the absence of their name from the book of life disqualifies them from entering heaven. They are not going to get access to eternal life. Um, but now they are going to be judged. So access to heaven is denied, but there are these other books. There's this whole library of books that are also open. And what do they refer to? Well, it says in verse 12, uh, the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So how big is this library of books that's opened in heaven? Well, it's as big as however many people there are. And if there is recording going on of your works in heaven, and that's why one of the things we are so wonderfully pleased with in our salvation is that um, our works are erased. And we stand there and our argument is, I am here based upon the works of Jesus and not my own. Because the works that are going to be recorded there uh, are what we're going to be judged by. I don't want to be judged by my works because I'm pretty sure even if it was a scale in heaven like this, a balancing scale, uh, my sins are going to outweigh my righteousnesses. I'm, I'm confident of that. Um, but we know that one sin disqualifies you from the book of life. One volitional act against uh, that is, a, is disqualifies, expunges our name or prevents our name from being in there uh, without the work of Christ. Um, but even if it was this kind of a scale, uh, I'm pretty sure most of us would be on the wrong side of it. So these books are open to judge their works. And we often think of works as positive things, not by works of righteousness, but we forget that there are works of evil too. Um, and so it's judging all their works. And so there is a recording in heaven. By the way, there is a recording in heaven of what you're doing as a believer. Uh, there is an account being kept in heaven. Philippians refers to it. There's other passages that refer to that. Uh, and, of course, the judgment seat of Christ is where that is measured out. And they'll say, well, that's worthless, that's wheat, that's hay, that's stubble, that's burn that stuff up. This is gold, silver, and precious stones. This is something that will endure into eternity. And out of that will come the, uh, the heavenly crowns and the rewards that we talk about. So that's already been done for the church, for the, for the people of God. That's already been done. Now... Uh, these works and these big books are opened up, and, and if anyone wants to make a claim, all Christ has to do is point to one sin in that book that's got your name on it. One sin in that book is all he needs. Well, you did this work of unrighteousness. This is a perfect place. You're not perfect. You can't come in. All he needs is one sin. But he's got a whole book of them. And every argument of man fails. And so the great white throne judgment is established. Now you might say, well, why? Why does it matter that they're judged according to their works by things written in the books? 
They're judged, again, in verse 13, each one according to his works, uh, so that we see they are evidenced in their disqualification. Their name's not in the book of life. So why further prove it, their sinfulness? Um, well, I would contend that there's another facet of judgment, and that facet of judgment is about what your eternal state will be like. And uh, this is a little controversial. I'll acknowledge that. But yes, I would hold, similarly to Dante's Inferno, that there are levels of hell. There are levels of punishment in the lake of fire. Uh, that might seem uh, incredulous, uh, and there really isn't a lot of biblical or scriptural backbone behind that at all, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But the but why are we looking at their works? Is is it going to be equal? In other words, is every uh, is the most heinous of sinners, uh, which are the self righteous Pharisees? Oh, you thought I was going to say the Hitlers and other people like that, right? Self righteous Pharisees. Um, and Dante's Inferno does a real good job of identifying those. The, again, the inner circles of the worst kind of, of punishment, and it's not the ignorant ones who did evil out of ignorance. It was those who had full knowledge of the truth. The most religious people are in the deepest and uh, hottest and worst parts of judgment because you're judged according to what you have knowledge of. And so... Death and Hades themselves are thrown in the lake of fire. And as we anticipate, so is everyone not found written in the book of life, cast in the lake of fire. Um, technically, uh, in our speech, we talk about you're going to spend eternity in hell. But hell is really um, Hades, and Hades itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. Your true uh, eternal state without Christ is the lake of fire. And Christ does describe that where the worm does not die. Okay, the fire is not quenched. Uh, makes it sound like it lasts forever. Um, now, there is a big movement, in, and it really started in the cults, but it has penetrated churches today. Even some pretty strong, historically conservative churches that, that hell is temporary. And by that, I don't mean that people can get out of hell somehow by being good residents of hell but rather that they will eventually burn up and be consumed by hell and cease to exist. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses really initiated a lot of that ideology that once you die, there is no hell. There is no eternal judgment. Um, that's one of the things that is attractive of it is, uh, of course, if you die as a Jehovah's Witness, there is no hell. If you die not being a Jehovah's Witness, there is no hell. There's nothing. Your only hope is to survive when Jesus comes. For the Jehovah's Witness, their whole ambition is to stay alive till Jesus comes to be part of the Millennial Kingdom. But it's evident from Jesus' words, from other things, we, we're talking about an eternal state. Um, this is a place forever and ever. And their big contention is, well, verse 15 doesn't say forever and ever, um, whereas verse 10 does say forever and ever. And so... Satan, the beast, the false prophet, all of them will be punished forever and ever. That was intended for them. We know that the lake of fire was made for Satan and his demons. It was devised for them. Um, before men really had sinned, God had already devised a place for them to be kept and to be punished. 
uh, for their rebellion against him. Um, and they would come to verse 15 and says, well, it doesn't say forever and ever there. And therefore, um, you're just going to burn up in hell and cease to exist. And the, the judgment by works in the books is how long it's going to take. So the more evil person God decides you are, the longer you're going to be burning in hell before you cease to exist, before you get burned up. Um, and again, we have a lot of problems with that because uh, of all the references in Scripture to the fact that we are designed to be eternal beings. Uh, and there's a little bit of the Sadducees in that, in that argument. Um, so don't think this is something unique to Christendom. The Sadducees, we talked about them this morning, they didn't believe in the afterlife at all. So when you died as a Jewish person, that was it. All you had was this world. So they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in us. That men had spirits that lived after them. So therefore, there was no resurrection because once your body's in the ground dissolves, you're done. It's kind of hard to hold to that when a guy named Lazarus is walking around, isn't it? <laughs> and Jesus, too, for that matter. Um, and so it's not unique to Christendom. Judaism has the same problem. Those who want to deny the, the eternal state of men. And usually their argument is, well, God is so loving. How could he do that to people forever and ever and ever and ever based upon options of being access to Christianity and to this message in this brief amount of time? And again, I think Romans 1 addresses it pretty easily. They all have access because they all have creation. And if they wanted to, God would get the message to them. And there are some great examples of that, even the Old Testament, right? If you wanted, if you were receptive, God got the message to you. Even if you had to get a great big fish to swallow his prophet and spit him on your shore, God would get you the message if you were going to listen. Correct? Even if it took some girl that you captured her and drug her out of her country and made a slave out of her for her to tell you and, and to give and for you to get <clears throat> leprosy. Um, if you were going to be a receptive person, God was able to get you into the face of a prophet to hear the message. And Naaman accepts God and worships the God of Israel. Pharaoh responds to Joseph. The harlot responds to the spies. I mean, we have plenty of evidence in God's word that anyone who is willing, God is going to make sure to get them the message. And so the fact is, is that this is the cost of rebellion, and it is righteous and just. And, and, uh, that, and my contention is, if there is no eternal punishment, can we really trust that there is eternal life um, if we are not designed that way? So we have this uh, description, but, but Jesus' statements, I think, are really strong in my position, um, that the worm doesn't die, the fire is not put out. Um, this is the place of eternal judgment. He wasn't referring to the demons. He's referring to the state of man. Okay, so that's for those who haven't believed. And then we get to chapter 21, and we get into the new heaven and the new earth. Because the old heaven and the old earth are gone. They couldn't stand before the great white throne judgment. So there is no earth and heaven during that period of the great white throne judgment. And by heaven, I don't mean the abode of God. I mean the heavens, like stars and the universe, right? That's the heaven referred to there. So now we have a new earth, a new heavens, um, and the first 
earth and first heaven had passed away. We already saw that earlier. And there was no more sea. Why is there no more sea in the new earth? Um, and this is something we are kind of out of touch with sometimes, is that the sea is the evidence of God's wrath. We have on the planet right now the evidence of the outpouring of God's wrath, and that's the sea. Um, there were no seas before the flood. All the waters gathered one place, under or above, um, or divided. It was in one place below, it was one place above, and the evidence from the Bible says the earth broke forth, and the waters from below flooded the earth. So it was all a giant aquifer with just three or four rivers out there, right? A few rivers, and um, giant aquifer, and then the canopy of moisture in the, in the sky. And so the presence of oceans on our planet right now is unnatural. It is the result of the flood. And so he makes a point to say, this place is a return of perfection. We're not talking about millennial kingdom, where God takes this sin-stained earth and just sets it right for a little while and uh, takes away the consequences of sin. This is a place where there has never been sin. And there will be no sin. And so we have a new heaven, a new earth. And the evidence is it's a pretty substantial size place compared to the old earth, this earth. Um, I'll explain that maybe in a little bit. And uh, out of it comes the new Jerusalem. We're going to talk about the new Jerusalem a lot more next week. But uh, we understand it as the resident place for the church, uh, particularly um, but as the abode or the dwelling of the throne of God. And so I saw the Holy City of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is different than the Jerusalem that Jesus reigned in during the Millennial Kingdom, which was on a reconstructed terrain of Israel. Now we have something very different. It says, uh, verse 3, I'm sorry, end of verse 2, uh, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this reference to the New Jerusalem in conjunction with the bride for her husband kind of takes our attention to the church, and we're going to see that being brought out in a little bit, even further. But I want you to see in verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And so this is the eternal place of the redeemed. So there is a new heaven, there's a new earth. We're going to talk about the residence of the new earth a little bit. And there's a new Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that next week, I should say, when we talk about the new Jerusalem. Because it's obvious that the people are going in and out of the new Jerusalem, but some people are staying in the new Jerusalem. And we're going to distinguish them, and, and I think, the description of the New Jerusalem helps us do that. So we have a new earth, and that is a fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. We have a new Jerusalem, which is the place of God's promise to the church. Where I am, there you will be also. God will be with them. We'll be with him. He'll be our God, and we will see him, and we will have this dwelling with him. There will be no tears, no sorrow, no pain. That's all passed away. All, not just the consequences of sin subdued, like the millennial kingdom, 
but the presence of sin is absent. It's gone. There is no sin. There are no consequences because there is no sin in this place. For all these are redeemed and resurrected and purified, and now they are fully the bride of Christ. So there's no place for any of those things because all those things are derived from sin. And so whenever you have your aches and pains and groans and cryings and sorrows and and those kind of things, you know what to blame. Adam. No, Eve. Blame her? No, we blame sin. We blame that sin factor that we are involved in and have been delivered from. And so we have this, and of course this, of course, verse 4 hopefully reminds us very quickly of another passage we read earlier in chapter 7 where our arrival in the presence of God um, describes something very similar. He's going to wipe away every tear. You might say, boy, why are we crying all the time? Well, you're crying because you got to heaven and found out, boy, I didn't serve my master nearly well enough for all he's going to do for me. And I think we're crying again because of all people that just got sent to the lake of fire. And that's traumatic. There's a trauma there. Um, uh, I don't know that God is celebrating that. It's necessary. He sits as judge, and that's a, a stern but a, and a very uh, somber time. It's sobering to think of what's going on there. But we find that this is a place where there is no pain, no sorrow, no, no suffering. Um, it's all past. Some would contend, well, our memory is now wiped of all sin and our memory is all wiped of all those people, and then we have no idea that there are other people in judgment. And uh, that, I guess, is a very strong possibility, but um, that when he wipes away every tear from their eyes, he's also wiping away every memory of sin. Um, But I think in that condition, we would then be in a weakened state of worship. Because it is maybe not a remembrance of specific sin, but rather remembrance that we were sinners and Christ saved us is part of our worship. And if you keep going back to the songs, I, I, I've been telling you all along we're going to listen to Revelation. Uh, remember the song um, of, the, of the Lamb. Worthy, you are worthy to take the scroll of the seals. You were slain and have redeemed them to God by your blood. You have made us kings and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. And so... Um, it's a song about his redemption. Well, how can you sing about that if you don't remember anything you've been redeemed from? And so I would contend that there is some kind of knowledge of God, of our sin, and yet not a knowledge that would bring any kind of guilt or any sense of that or in interest in ever committing those acts. No longing after it, no interest in it at all, just a... a, a memory that there I was. And similarly with the knowledge of eternal lake of fire, um, we think of the lake of fire, that's a sad thing to watch, but it's a just thing to see. It's, it's the glorification of God's holiness just as much as our presence in heaven is their presence in the lake of fire. He is glorified. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And so now we have a repetition of this, getting into 5, 6, 7, and 8. And again, we had the 
sinners. We have the saints, and now we're going to start with the saints and go back to the sinners. Okay? And so we have this, which is, uh, it is, um, verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. And so that's the redeemed. That is the relationship, the intimate relationship there that is life with for us who are redeemed. And this is the finish. This is the end. We're, we're, it is done in terms of, of decisions of, of which way we'll go. It is completed. It is finished. And we have our eternal state. And then verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And so um, this is their end. And so we have a summary, if you will, by God of what John just saw in the great white throne judgment, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And we're going to have an expansion on the new Jerusalem here. Um, but John just sees, here's what's happening. And now God is coming back and reinforcing this, that yes, this is what's going to happen with the redeemed. This is their end, because this is the end. I'm the first, and I'm the last, and I'm telling you this is the end. Nothing's changing from this point on. This is permanent. Here's where the redeemed are. I'm their God, they're my, my sons, joint heirs of Jesus Christ, little less sons. But all those sinners, all those that were unrepentant, that didn't receive Christ as their Savior, lake of fire, which burn, they have their part in it, um, which burns with fire and brimstone, and that's the second death. And that's the condition. That's the eternal state. And the decisions you make in your life today affect your eternity. We can sit there and deny it, like many others, and deny, like the Sadducees, and deny that it ever exists or ever will because none of us have ever been there. Or we can trust God, whose word we have before us, who has been there and back, who, has, who knows like a fire exists because he made it, um, and knows that this is the end. And therefore, we must put our house in order and receive Christ as our Savior. Um, and by that terminology in verse 7, uh, there's two terms here that I think are the salvific that I need to just touch on for this group, I think. First of all, he says, you have to be thirsty for the water of life. Are you thirsty for life? That's receiving Christ as your Savior. That's that act of submission to him. Um, and it goes back to Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. Are you thirsty for life? Is it a desire of your heart? Is it a desire willing to submit yourself completely and surrender your pride and arrogance and acknowledge your sin that you might have life? And he will provide it. But there's a second term here. In verse 7 it says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. The other half of your salvation, if it's genuine, is you're going to overcome. Well, what are you overcoming? 
Well, we could have a whole host of things. The Bible says you have to be super conquerors. Hyper, it's huper uh, is the Greek. It's, we get hyper from it. You have to be super conquerors. God has made us more than conquerors through him who loved us. That we are going to overcome the world. That we're going to overcome that which would dissuade us from following after God. That would make us question him. That would make us of no faith. That would make us uh, fall into sin and, and deny him before men. That we end up being denied before him. And so there is a continuing aspect to our salvation. And we are doing a, a pretty wicked thing, telling people that, if, well, if you pray that prayer, you're all set. That's pretty wicked because that's not enough. Because the real evidence that that was a real spiritual act is going to be in your overcoming and I think that's pretty consistent throughout God's Word, isn't it? Um, I tell people about First John. I tell people about James. I tell people about Romans. And, and you say, well, they seem like they almost contradict each other. I was like, no. Romans says, here's how you get saved. And yes, it talks about being more than conquerors through whom who loved us. James tells me, how can I tell that you're saved? How do I know you're saved? By your works, right? Faith without works is dead. First John, how do I know I'm saved? Do you love God? You see, I can't see love. I might see some of the outward effects of love, that's works. But I can't see the loves of your heart. I can't look in your heart and say, oh, you love that and you love that. All I can see, and that's what James talks about, all I can see is what you're doing and all the commitments in your life and, and where your priorities are and, and what your activities are, and that communicates to me some information that I have to make then some determinations of whether you're a believer or not. You don't seem to be interested in God. You, you don't seem to be interested in the Bible. I mean, you can't hardly force yourself to sing a song in church. Well, that communicates something to me, that the things of God aren't very interesting. And then I start praying for you because there's no evidence. Does that mean you're not a believer? No, it means you haven't proven to me you're a believer, James. Then when I have kids come in, and usually it's right after camp, um, I don't know if I'm saved because I've been doing some bad things. Well, I take them to First John. Why? Well, here's that you may know that you are a believer. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Because my heart could trick me. I don't want to be one of those people that goes, Lord, Lord, I've done all these things in your name. And Christ says, I don't know who you are. I don't want to be one of those. Well, First John is the answer. How do you know that you are? How do I know about me? How do you know about you? And so you have First John's approach to help you solidify your salvation for yourself. You have James's approach. How can you solidify salvation in others? And then you have Paul in Romans saying, here's what salvation is. And all of them deal with overcoming sin, overcoming evil with good, and doing those works that please God. And so even here at the very end, God says, listen, I'll, if you want life, I've, I, I'll give it to you. But there's an overcoming part that you got to participate in. 
there should be some overcoming in your life. And if that's absent, um, you have every reason to be concerned. And I will never um, try to diminish that. If you have those kinds of doubts, I will not diminish them by trying to say, oh, you're okay. Because even your works can fool me. That's why First John is so powerful. Who do you love? What do you love? Do you love your family more than God? I'm pretty sure Jesus said, if you love them more than me, you're not worthy of me. Didn't he say that? So First John is all about, what do you love? Who do you love? That tells you whether you're a believer or not. What are you living for? If you're not living for God, if it's not something you love, then you have every reason to be in doubt, and I would suggest you address that between you and God and ask Him to transform your life. You can fool me with false works. and Maybe you can fool yourself by saying you love God, but you know that there's other things that would always come first before Him. And I got to tell you, in my experience right now, um, I think in our culture here in New Mexico, especially with a lot of the Hispanics, but even I've seen it, a lot of the homeschoolers, I've seen it, a lot of, of these pro-family groups that we love our family more than we love God. You make me choose between doing righteousness and serving God in the church and helping my family. I can't tell you how many families in our church we've lost because they chose their children over righteousness. And we're talking about deacon families. Who do you love more than Christ? If there's anyone on that list above him, yeah, I think you should doubt. And I think you should address that between you and God really soon before the end comes. Do you love me more than these? Isn't that what Jesus asked Peter at the very end? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Okay, do you love me at least? <laughs> right? Last time, well, okay. Will you be my friend, if not my intimate one? Okay. This idea of overcoming, I think, ties us back to that. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we are uh, excited about what con- is waiting for the believers. Um, it's, it'll be exciting next week to really delve into it and see what's involved, what our existence will be like on that side of the end. Um, Lord, it's also sobering. None of us, I think, in this room want to be wrong. That we want to be um, false in our belief. And so we pray you might continue to work that which you've begun in us. Lord, we want eternal life. We thirst for it like all men. We also know that there has to come a stand, a place where you, your son, righteousness, holiness, captivates our heart. That we might overcome our own propensity to sin might overcome the world and the temptations that are in it to overcome the evil one to overcome those that are false uh, teachers and Lord we uh, 
Pray that we might be count of that number, that we might enjoy that inheritance waiting for us. Lord, our prayers that we might feel the pressure that the passing of time creates to make sure, not only of our own salvation, but of those around us, especially when we don't see any evidence in our life that they love you, that they're serving you, that they're overcoming anything of this world. That we might confront them with what we see, with their works, and challenge them on their faith, and whether it's real or not. Not because we are being high and mighty, but because their eternal state may depend upon it. Lord, give us that kind of heart and that kind of boldness. And Lord, for those who don't even profess or even confess or know that we might be diligent to make sure that they have the information of how one can be saved. Again, knowing that our time is short and that tomorrow may be too late. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.